0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter six. Samuel, Second Samuel chapter six. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. you read verses one through eleven for us. We're going to be reading verses twelve through nineteen here in just a moment. Second Samuel chapter six. As you're opening up there, I, I want to invite you all to meet me this afternoon um, at Southside Baptist Church. Uh, for the 140th annual meeting of the Etowah Baptist association we are so privileged to be able to partner together with other baptist churches not only in etowah county and in other ways as well but particularly today we'll be celebrating our association with other etowah baptists and this is sort of part business meeting part worship service part homecoming is the theme this year and it should be a good time so i would encourage you at two o'clock there'll be a, a mass choir that will be singing and it'll be a good time together so i hope i hope to see you there south side baptist This afternoon at two o'clock. Well, if you have your Bibles open there to Second Samuel chapter six, I'm going to read to you verses twelve through nineteen. Second Samuel chapter six. If you're open there, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God? The author writes under the inspiration in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking. To us. Beginning verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. that all the people departed, each to his house. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, open our hearts and minds to receive Your Word today. And God, I pray that today, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would experience Your presence through Your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this year, my dad had open-heart surgery. And as you probably know, if you've ever had a loved one or you yourself have gone through an operation like that, it sort of comes with a little bit, maybe a whole lot of anxiety. It can make you really anxious to go through an experience like that or to go through that with one of your parents. Um, I went with him and my mom to the appointments and I was pretty worried. I was trying not to show it, but I was just sort of worried, just dealing with my own anxiety about my dad going through this operation. I knew all the things that you need to know to not worry. I knew that he was having the surgery done at UAB, which is one of the best hospitals for this type of surgery. I knew that his surgeon, who happened to be the head of cardiothoracics at UAB, is one of the top surgeons in his field when he does this sort of thing. I would later learn, I mean, this guy does uh, several of these surgeries every single day. It's just another day at the office for him. But still, deep down inside, I was worried. But one day, we were at one of the appointments, we're sitting in a doctor's office, a, a exam room of some sort there at UAB, and I was dealing with just a little bit of anxiety, thinking about the surgery, I knew it was coming up soon, and I'll never forget the feeling I had when the surgeon, Dr. Davies, came into the room during one of the early appointments. It's hard to describe uh, what it was like. He didn't have a lot to say, he wasn't there for a long time, but he was professional And clear, and there was just something about the gravitas that this guy had as he came in the room. I thought, this is the guy, if you have to have somebody hold your heart in his hands, this is the guy you want to have your heart in his hands. This is who you want to have do it. As I was in his presence, my confidence grew and my anxiety was relieved. And from that point forward, even though there's still a few things to worry about, of course, at that point, my confidence went through the roof in terms of not worrying and not being anxious any longer about the surgery. You see, I already knew everything I needed to know, but what really made the difference? What really changed it for me? What made that knowledge real for me? It was the presence of the surgeon. His presence made the difference. This morning, we turn our attention to the presence of God. What does it mean to be in God's presence? What does it mean for God to be among us? How does God's presence impact His people? This morning, I want to show you three truths about the presence of God. Uh, Three truths about God's presence in our lives, in our church. Three truths about what it means to live in the presence of God. Here's the first truth this morning. The first point I want you to see today is this. God's presence elicits worship. God's presence elicits. It gives birth to worship. Now, I think it's worth repeating that back in 1 Samuel, this was a long time ago, a battle had occurred and and God's people chose to use the Ark of God sort of like a rabbit's foot. They said, if we put this thing in our pocket, the Philistines won't be able to beat us. God won't let that happen. And guess what happened? They got their tails whooped. I mean, they really got it handed to them. And on top of that, to add insult to injury, not only did they lose the battle, but the Philistines were able to carry the Ark of God off back into their territory. They captured God's Ark. And so what they did is they took it and they put it in their temple next to their God, treating the God of Israel, the Holy One, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, treating Him like another common Canaanite idol. And in the process, and it's a beautiful story, you might go back and read it if you missed that sermon, if you've never read it before. In the midst of this, God shows himself to be holy and mighty among the Philistines, and by the time it's all over, they just send the ark back. They hitch it up on on a wagon with some oxen in front of it, and they send it back to Israel, and it winds up back there. And yet, it has just been simply left in a singular place this whole time. In fact, it seems like enough time has passed that Uh, the name of the city has changed. It's called Kiriath-Jerim in 1 Samuel, but here it's called Baal-Judah. Baal-Judah is where the ark remains. Now, after claiming Jerusalem as his political capital, David decides he wants to move to make Israel, I mean Jerusalem, the religious center of Israel as well. Now I want you to notice how the process Goes. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, that's 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Beljuda to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, I want you to notice here very clearly that the author is making it abundantly clear that this ark is not God. It's called by His name, it's associated with Him and with His glory, but it is not God Himself. It is symbolic, uh, even though it comes with the presence of God, it's simply because of what it represents, which is God's commitment to His people and who He is. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now I want you to notice in terms of this point, one simple thing here in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It couldn't be more simple. God's presence elicits worship. Not just here in verse 5, but throughout the chapter. We're going to see over and over again the way that the presence of God elicits worship. When we come into the presence of God, we are meant to worship. It's because of who God is. He is worthy of worship. He is meant to be worshiped. There's some people, when we go into their presence, we find ourselves in awe of them, and yet we do not worship them. God is different, though. When we come into God's presence, we must be led to worship if we truly understand who He is. Now, we think a lot about worship in our lives. In fact, thank God, uh, this isn't as pronounced as it was, but we went through a time in the life of the church in the United States of America that people called... The worship wars. The worship wars. And this is when everybody decided it would be a good idea to fight over how we sing praises to Jesus, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I was sort of coming of age during that time. It never made sense to me. It's like, aren't we just, let's just worship, you know? Let's just worship Jesus. Let's, there's different ways to do it. Praise God. All being said, uh, we think about it, and especially during that season of life in the Lord's churches, you have a lot of people talking about the best way to worship God. All the things we need to really, truly worship. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What does it really take to have an authentic experience of worship? What do we really need to have an authentic experience of worship? Man, we're so glad to have the organ back, right? To be able to use that this Sunday. But did we worship less last Sunday than we did this Sunday? Of course not. What does it really take? When my kids were little... At times, we had to have a really unique set of circumstances to get them to go to sleep. Um, man, if I were to, if, 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 let's just say it's 11 o'clock in the, in the morning. My kids say, I'm thirsty. And I say, Have some water. They're like, Are you kidding me? I want juice or something. You know, they, water. I don't want water until it's 9.30 at night. In which case, they demand water by the gallons. I have to have so much water. It's amazing the amount of water it requires for a child to go to sleep. When they were little, it took the right blanket, the right temperature. When Ford was a baby, we could control the thermostat with our phones. We'd hear him over the monitor start rustling. We'd turn the heat up one degree as soon as the warm air started blowing in his room. He went right to sleep. Gas bill was six hundred dollars. It didn't matter. I'd rather be asleep, sweating, and broke than up all night. (laughs) The right blanket, the right temperature, the right amount of stories read, the right amount of rocking. It takes this delicate song and dance to get the kids to bed. Some of you are living that right now. Some of you still haven't figured the formula out. It'll come, don't worry. What set of circumstances are required... For you to worship. What set of circumstances are required for us to worship? Does it need to be a praise song? Does it need to be something we hear on the radio? Does it need to be a song we sang at camp? Does it have to be a song we sang growing up? Does it have to be a hymn from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s? Does it need to be a shape note hymn? Does it need to be from the red back hymnal? What does it take for us to worship? What should it take for us to worship? What what should it take for us to worship? It should not take much more than the presence of God to lead us to worship. It, it, It shouldn't take much more than the presence of God to lead us to worship. And let me just tell you something right now. When the saints of God are gathered as His people on the Lord's Day, God is there with them. And when we come here, we come here to worship God because His presence is here. I want you all, myself included, to be so careful with the barriers that you put in front of worship. The, the barriers and the exclusions that you put around how you will and will not worship. The judgment that you put toward how others do and do not worship. Be so careful because God's presence should be enough to lead us to worship. Second of all, God's presence demands reverence. Uh, God's presence demands reverence. Notice verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Now I want you to consider this for just a moment. We learned down in verse 6 that it's being carried by oxen. That is, the Israelites are treating the Ark of God the same way the Philistines did. They're putting it on a cart and having it carried by oxen. Now it seems like you and I might sit down and say, well, we got to get the Ark uh, from here to there, <laughs> Right? we got to get the ark from bel judah all the way to jerusalem what's the best way to do it well i mean goodness gracious if we carry that thing the whole way we're gonna be worn out so i'll tell you the best thing we could do we saw the way the philistines did it we'll just put it on a cart you know some old man was over in the corner said, so i'll tell you how they got it here they put it on a cart and had the oxen carry it that's how they did it and everyone said okay that's a great idea let's do that what's the problem with that so i said I mean, practically it doesn't seem to matter at all right The problem is God had already told his people how the ark should be carried. He'd given clear instructions on how to do this back in Exodus and elsewhere in the Old Testament. God had commanded that the ark be carried by the priestly line, by the Levites, with poles placed through the rings on the sides of the ark. And so God had already told his people how they should treat the ark, and they're already ignoring his instructions. And so, as the ark is going forth, the ark starts teetering, and one of the sons of Abinadab tries to do what he thinks is the right thing, but it's a collection of errors that leads to the moment. And so what he thinks is that he should reach his hand out to steady the ark of God. And he reached his head out to steady the ark of God there at the threshing floor of Nacon. And when he did it, the Bible says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. David responds to this with anger and fear and they leave the ark there at the house of Obed. Consider this for a moment, my friends. What do we learn? See, I'm afraid that sometimes our attitude when it comes to worship when it comes to how we treat God, when it comes to how we respond to God. Sometimes I afraid our attitude because of because of the world we live in, because of the the secularizing nature of the world we live in. Less and less people believe in God, less and less people are worshiping God. And sometimes I feel like even as Christians, our hearts can come to a place, our attitude can come to a place when we read a passage like this and we say, I feel like God should probably just be thankful for whoever worships Him in whatever way they choose to worship Him. He should just kind of be thankful for what he can get, shouldn't he? And while we might not say that with our mouths, I can tell sometimes even when I read a passage like this, the way that sort of thought starts to creep up in my heart. Well, I mean, they meant well. They're doing their best. Shouldn't God just be fine with that? My friends, the presence of God demands reference. It it demands reference. Reverence. Now, I'm not talking about superficial reverence. I'm not talking about whether or not God cares about how we're dressed or whatever else like that. I don't, I don't mean that at all. Uh, so much of that is man's concern and not God's concern. I'm talking about a reverence of heart. Luke chapter 18, our Lord Jesus Christ tells us a story. Imagine with me for a moment that you walk up on two people praying. One... Is a Southern Baptist preacher dressed like me. If you think I'm dressed appropriately. If you think I ought to be dressed a little nicer, he's dressed a little nicer. All right? He just, he looks the part. He's like a Southern Baptist preacher out of central casting coat and tie. He's got his hair slicked back in a big, beautiful bouffant. He just looks wonderful. And then next to him. Is a man who has recently been in the news because the business that he had, it turns out, was taking advantage of its customers and stealing from its customers, in particular, stealing from elderly people. You you know it. We all know it. So you have a well respected preacher in the room, and then you have a a man that looks terrible, a, a man that you know has disobeyed the Lord and has done something we just find to be awful. And you look at those two men and you see them praying. And you say, what is he doing here? Uh, Of course, he's trying to make a show of uh, his repentance. But what does God see? Jesus tells us the story. Sub in a Pharisee and a tax collector, but it's very similar. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, Adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, if we just looked on the scene, who would we assume was reverent? Who would we assume had a reverent heart? On the outside, we would assume it's the fair seeker, heck, not the tax collector. But what does Jesus show us? The man, not the man who's standing with his chest puffed out before God, with his chin held high, reading out his accolades to the Lord, commending himself that he's better than the other man there. It was not him that was showing true reverence. It was the man who would not even look up to heaven, who was beating his breast. That's who was reverent. When we think about the example of Uzzah being struck dead for not regarding the Lord as holy... I think that what we can tend to do is start to want to supply for ourselves a sort of fake reverence in our worship. Fake reverence is characterized by high-hatted heartiness, to be haughty before God. I'll tell you, there are very few people in the world who are more haughty than the people who think they're reverent, who take pride in their reverence. Fake reverence has a genuine desire for the appearance of holiness. A genuine desire for the appearance of holiness. Fake reverence has a zeal for the dignity of man. For for everything looking the way man feels like things ought to look when things ought to be and should be and are dignified. But brothers and sisters, as this passage shows us so clearly, dignity... Man's dignity has very little to do with the true worship of God. That's what fake reverence looks like. Authentic reverence, though, is contrite humility before God. It's a genuine desire for authentic holiness. Not the appearance of holiness, but genuine holiness before God. It's a zeal not for the dignity of man, but a zeal for the glory of God. That's what true reverence is. And when we come into God's presence, we must be reverent. We must be reverent. That doesn't necessarily mean stuffy, as we'll learn. That that doesn't necessarily mean austere. Goodness gracious, can't a church be reverent and joyful at the same time? Oh, certainly it can. Is there at times a greater sound of reverence than the sound of children in the sanctuary of God? The sound of His people there? There. No, my friends, we don't want to be, we don't want to settle for fake reverence. God's presence cuts through fake reverence, and it demands authentic, genuine reverence of heart. Brothers and sisters, God's presence elicits worship. God's presence demands reverence. And finally, God's presence gives joy. God's presence gives joy. Now, we don't want to forget the lesson of Uzzah, but we also don't want to miss the primary note of this passage. There's certainly a low note when Uzzah is struck and the ark is abandoned there for a moment. And yet, over and over and over again, what do you see in this passage? Resounding joy. Resounding joy. First, we see the joy of blessing. The joy... Of blessing. Notice what the Bible says in verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. Now the author really wants to emphasize this to us because we're reminded again. And it was told King David, verse 12, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. With rejoicing. Not only do we see the way God's presence gives joy by, through the joy of blessings, and brothers and sisters, just know this doesn't mean a sort of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But what it does mean is ultimately God's presence does bring blessings. Blessings. It doesn't mean that everyone who's in God's presence will be rich. It doesn't mean that everyone who uh, experiences God's blessings will always be happy, but it does mean everyone who is in God's presence will be blessed in one way or another. Notice, though, this joy in worship. They bring it with rejoicing. And I want you to see this. Begin in verse 13. And when those... Who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He, that's David, sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. You see the difference? Did anybody catch that? Those who bore the ark. No longer is it on a cart. Presumably they have adjusted course. And there are people who are now carrying the ark the way the Lord has commanded the ark be carried. There's no need now to worry about the stumbling in the same way that there was with the oxen. Because it's being carried in an appropriate way. David, along the way, after six steps, sacrifices an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Sometimes people ask me, do I think only Baptists will be in heaven? And I said, well, no, I think David will be in heaven. He's clearly not a Baptist. He danced before the Lord. Now think about the joy. The joy that comes with worship. Notice also David is wearing a linen ephod. This is a priestly garment. And here we see the way that the plan and purpose of God of blessing all the nations through the seed of Abraham is coming true in a partial sense in the life of David as the political and the religious life of Israel is being united in the kingship of David. He's a priest, not forever, but he's a priest in this way after the order of Melchizedek. This priest king we see Abraham give tithes to in the book of Genesis. And the author of Hebrews later references and talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. As this ark is coming into the city of God, God's people are overjoyed. They're rejoicing. And David is dancing while wearing a linen ephod in a way that some commentaries commentators say uh, would, would give a sight and vision of the king that might be a little less than appropriate. I don't necessarily think he's exposing himself necessarily or anything like that, but just not how you would expect the king to be. This reminds me, uh, we have an exercise class of senior adult ladies that meets here at the church. When I first came here 11 years ago, uh, I was invited to come participate in the exercise class. And so I looked at my wife, to Whitney, and I said, What in the world should I wear? Uh... You you know, I I just don't know what you wear. So what I settled on was sweatpants with a t-shirt tucked in. And I thought that did the trick. That's how, how you might expect to see your pastor at the exercise class. In other words, when you think about these things, you want to make sure that you look a certain way. And yet David's not concerned about that. David's not concerned about how he appears. He's not concerned about how he looks. And he pays a price for it. His wife Michal, Saul's daughter, looks at him. We see in verse 16, and despises him, the Bible says. And then we skip down to verse 20. As soon as he walks in with the joy of the Lord on his face, McCall immediately, sarcastically cuts him down. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. My friends, I want you to know something. I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen multiple times in my ministry. People can mistake the joy of the Lord for irreverence. People can mistake the joy of the Lord for irreverence. Sometimes we may feel like we need to choose between joy and reverence in worship, but the reality is we don't have to choose. We can do both. And oftentimes, the most reverent thing we can do in worship is rejoice. Brothers and sisters, we are people of good news. We serve a God of love. We serve a God who cares for His children. We have been redeemed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What reverences and honors the name of God more than joy? David understood it. David recognized it. And he responded to her. Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Brothers and sisters, God's presence brings joy. If there's one thing I want our church to be characterized by, it's joy. I think it's the primary theme of the Bible. It's the primary theme of worship. It's still almost the most important thing we bring to the table is joy. That doesn't mean we never show any other emotion. Joy doesn't mean mere happiness. What it means is though that we are a joyful people who are loved by a joyful God, who are saved by a joyful Christ, who are indwelled by a joyful Spirit, and we should be a people of joy. What a beautiful day it was to see the ark of God carried to Jerusalem. But years later, God's people would reflect on this day. They would reflect on it as they sang a song as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the holidays that they were required to celebrate there. They would sing on the way. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will close with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. O friends who are gathered here to worship Jesus Christ, don't you see how the horn of David has sprouted? Don't you see how this great leader, this son of David, is now on His throne? Don't you see that there is a son on whom the crown of David shines? Don't you know that even now, God is building, as the book of Revelation tells us, a new Jerusalem, a Zion on high, that one day will come down out of heaven and will consume this broken and fallen world and transform the whole thing according to the glory of Christ. Don't you see what God is building even now in this room. He is building for Himself a place to dwell. You have been called to Zion, to the city of the living God. He has desired it for His dwelling place. Would you trust? Would you believe? Would you hope in Jesus today? I want to offer an invitation to you this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I believe if you'll turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God... In faith through Jesus, you will be saved. Second of all, second of all, not only that, not only do I believe you can respond to the Lord for salvation, but second of all, if you're a believer, um, if you need to do business with the Lord today, I, I want to encourage you to do that right now. If you need someone to talk to, I'll be here for you. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. It would be my joy to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.